Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to New Life Christian Church. So glad that you're able to be here with us today. And can we just start by letting me congratulate you? You have any idea what I'm going to congratulate you on? We are on 21, chapter 21 of the story, which means after today, we will have completed the Old Testament, which is a big deal, which is a big deal. And I see some of you doing this clap. You can clap really good. You can clap really hard. I saw you over there. It is a big deal, and I'd like to congratulate you just by the show of hands. I've done this each service, and, and it's always, I mean, it's, it's, I know, it's just a good thing. How many of you started coming to New Life during the story series? Oh, good, a lot of you. Hey, welcome. We're so glad you're here. I hope that this series is really just touching your heart and you're enjoying it. Um, but we end, we're in, ending the, the Old Testament today. And then next weekend, we are going to launch out into the New Testament portion of our series. And not only that, but next weekend is when we launch our Saturday evening service. And we couldn't be more excited about that. And and it's not a coincidence that we're starting our Saturday night service on the same weekend that we're launching the New Testament. This series is going to have a kind of a new feel to it. And as you talk to your friends, your family, your neighbors, whoever God puts in your life, and you're having opportunity to invite them to church, this next weekend would be a great opportunity to invite them because we are starting something fresh. We're going to have a storybook for them. It'll be our gift to them, as you know, and uh, just encourage them to start reading. We'd love for them to come and join us. Now, as we've been doing these last few weeks, we've been taking a few minutes at the beginning of the teaching time just to pray and uh, to pray for Saturday nights, to pray for what we believe God's going to do. So would you join me as we pray together? And let's just focus our thoughts and our prayers on, on next Saturday evening and what we believe God's going to do. Dear Heavenly Father, we just pause for a minute and we, we come before you, Lord, and, and we just ask God that you continue to go before us and that you would continue to do the work of getting the word out and softening people's hearts, opening their ears and just being available to, to what you might show them. Lord, we believe that we're following you in this endeavor and we're trusting, Lord, that you will, you will bless it, Lord, and that you'll go before us and, and show us the way. Lord, we don't have all the answers for sure, but we declare today, Lord, that our faith is in you and our trust is in you and you are the one with the answers and how nothing escapes your notice, God. And so we just, we just ask for your help. And we just pray, Lord, that at the end of the day, all we are, we're, we're instruments in your hands and that uh, you'll use this church to reach more and more people in our community with the good news of Jesus Christ so that heaven can be fuller one day. Lord, help us now as we unpack this next chapter in our series, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. If you got your storybooks with you today, please turn over to page 295. That's where we're going to be. And if you just got your regular Bible with you, we're going to be in Nehemiah today, the book of Nehemiah. And uh, we're going to be kind of all over that book. We're going to start in chapter 1. Whenever I come to this part of the Bible, whenever I come to the name Nehemiah in Scripture, I can't help it. I automatically think about the movie Field of Dreams. Do you guys know that movie? Are you familiar with it? Like, like in the last service, we had a whole bunch of our junior high and high schoolers right there, and they're like, Field of Dreams, what? Like, oh yeah, it's a 1989 movie. They weren't even born yet. They wouldn't know. But it's a great movie. Uh, actor Kevin Costner, he plays this farmer, and he's a farmer in Iowa, and he's walking through his cornfields one day, and he hears a voice. Do you remember what he hears? If you build it, he will come. Is it coming back to you? And then he has this vision of a baseball diamond right there in the middle of his 
corn crop. And so he does what every rational farmer from Iowa would do in that situation. He plows up his crops and he builds a baseball diamond, of course. And, and people who see this, they make fun of him. They ridicule him. He, he, they can't understand why he is doing that. You know what? In chapter 21 of the story, we're going to learn about a man who also had a vision to build something. And it wasn't a baseball diamond in the middle of the cornfield, not that. He had a, vi- a vision to build something far more significant, far more spiritual, both physically and every other way for the Israelites. His name is Nehemiah, and he is one of the most godly, bold, courageous, influential leaders that you're ever going to see in the Old Testament. And Ray, from the movie Field of Dreams, kind of reminds me a little bit of Nehemiah from chapter 21. Both of these guys had a vision to do something big. Didn't make sense to people. Both of them were ridiculed and threatened about their dream. Both of them knew that something bigger than themselves was happening. And both of these guys knew that the only way forward was to be obedient. Now, the field of dreams is just a movie. It's fiction. Nothing more than that. But Nehemiah's story, it's real. And what he built still stands to this day as a testimony to what God was doing. And what he builds actually helps to shape a revival for the people of God. So before we get into the story, let me just kind of set the stage for you. As you know, this is your first time with us. We're in the middle of a series called The Story. We've been studying the entire Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And today, as I said just a minute ago, we are finishing the Old Testament part of that story, that series. Now, as we have learned so far in this series that God has a passionate desire to live in community with his creation. That is all over the pages of the Old Testament. We learn that sin entered the world. Sin changed everything. Sin, maybe a good way to look at it, has become a part of our spiritual DNA, if you will, and it destroyed uh, our ability to have community with God. We learn all about that just in the first couple chapters of the Bible. The rest of the story, the rest of the Bible, is God's attempt to win us back to himself. To do that, we see that he created in the Old Testament a special group of people. They're sometimes referred to as God's chosen. They are the Israelites. And and God was going to build this nation of the Israelites as an example to all of the world of what holiness looks like, what a people who follow God looks like. They are going to be so devoted to God and God so devoted to them that all the other nations around them were going to look at them as this incredible example and want to be drawn to them and be drawn to be a part of God's family. Well, as you've seen in the story, the Israelites didn't always treat God as their God, did Did they? They they didn't always follow him wholly. solely. A lot of times they would turn to idols. They would would, uh, follow after what the desires of the other nations. And there's this whole up and down, hot and cold relationship that the Israelites had with God. Well, that all came to ahead a couple chapters ago when we saw that the Israelites were conquered and they were hauled off into captivity. And for the next 70 years, they would be in captivity. They would be prisoners. 
Now, a good number of them kept their cultural identity. They remained Jewish. They didn't completely blend in with the, the nation that had taken them captive. But for 70 years, outside of like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, there's not a whole lot of bright spots happening for the Israelites in those 70 years. But at the end of that 70 years, the king lets them know that anybody who wants to go back to Jerusalem is free to go. And so 50,000 of these Israelites, they go home and they start to work and start to rebuild the temple of God. Right after that, we learned about this last week, we meet Queen Esther. All of those Israelites that stayed behind in Persia, well, they were going to be annihilated, but God elevated Esther to, a, to such a time as this, do you remember? And she saved her people. It's something that Jewish people still celebrate to this day. After that, another group of exiles went home. They were led there by Ezra. And then 10 years later, another group goes home. And this group is led by Nehemiah. Only Nehemiah's group home had no idea that God had given him a vision for something spectacular. So let's read about it together. This is on page 295, or you can follow along. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. In the months of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa. So this is Nehemiah himself writing this. Hannah and I, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. So you understand what he's talking about? One of his brothers had gone home and then came back. And he's telling Nehemiah about everything that he'd seen about Jerusalem. And then he said this. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. In other words, you remember when they got conquered all those years ago? The city is still in ruins. And this was distressing. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. A couple questions we have to answer because some of you are reading this for the very first time and the name Nehemiah is the first time for you to hear this name. Who in the world is Nehemiah? Nehemiah is a Jew. He grew up in exile. He's never been to Jerusalem. He's never been to the land of his ancestors. He was born in captivity, raised in captivity. That's who Nehemiah is. He also has a very important job. Just through the grace of God, God has elevated him to become the cupbearer for the king. So this puts him in the immediate proximity of the king. He has access to the king on a regular basis. This is a very important job. And there's one other question then that begs to be asked about Nehemiah. Why does he care about the walls? And that, that's a question we have to ask. Why does he care about these, these walls? These, these walls being in bad shape. This is not new information. Jerusalem was destroyed in 586 BC. Nehemiah has this visit from his brother and this conversation in 445 BC. We're talking about a time of 140 years here. This is not new information about the walls being in such terrible shape. And so why does he care? He seems to have a good life. He seems to have things going on for himself. But whenever he hears about these walls and the distress of the people, it breaks his heart this time. Why? Why this time? 
If I had to guess, and this is purely a guess because the Bible doesn't necessarily tell us why he was so broken up over this, but when I think about Nehemiah, and I just think about it through his lenses, I think when he got this news, he went from knowing about it to feeling it. He went from knowing to, to, to feeling. He went from the I know in his head to the I know in his heart. You know, sometimes the longest trip somebody will ever take in their life is to go from the I know to the I know. And I think that's what's going on with Nehemiah. A few years ago, I think we all remember when that, uh, that uh, horrific tornado tore through the streets of Joplin. Do you remember? Not that long ago. Um, I knew that it was a, that it was a, a terrible horrible tornado. I didn't know it at the time. In fact, my brother, who's actually here today, he called me on the phone that Sunday afternoon. and like, hello. And he goes, hey, I just want to let you know we're good. Everything's okay. And I said, great, Tim. I'm glad to hear that. Okay, bye. Click. I'm like, that was really weird. Why is he telling me? I had no idea there was a tornado. And then I started getting all these phone calls, and I realized it was a tornado, and I realized it was big, and it was, and it was horrible. And I turned on the TV, and I could see that it was bad, and it was going to be one of the worst tornadoes to ever hit a populated area. Um, and, and having family that lived there and living there myself for four years, I, I, I knew a lot about that area. I, I knew it was bad. I knew it. But it wasn't until a couple days later when I actually drove to Joplin and actually talked with my family and saw the damage that I realized just how bad it actually was. So my sister, she lives in Joplin and, and the tornado was heading right for her house and about three blocks away from her house, the tornado just kind of came off the ground and it skipped her street. So if you look at you know, the day after the tornado, everything was leveled all around her, her house, but her street and the one next to it just seemed to come across with just very little damage, a little bit of roof damage and a couple big trees had, had fallen over. Um, and after talking to my sister and, and having her tell me the story of that day and how the tornado missed their, their house, even though it was coming right, right at it, that's when I went from, I know... To I know. Are you with me? That's when it went from I'm aware to I, I feel it. And I think that's what Nehemiah has got to be going through in the text. He knew about the condition of the walls, but after he talked to his brother, it went from, yeah, I know about it, to now I feel it. And it hit him in a way that he was not prepared for. This is probably the very first time that Nehemiah has ever talked to anybody who has gone to Jerusalem and came back. This is not a quick little journey. To go from the land of exile back to Jerusalem, it would take somebody between five and six months to travel. It's about 900 miles. So it's not like people are commercing back and forth all the time. So his brother had gone and came back, and it's probably the first time he'd ever talked to anybody who was an eyewitness of the promised land. And after hearing this news, it just affected him like it hadn't before. Maybe some of you in this room today um, are experiencing something very, very similar. How things impact you today differently than they did back in the day. Maybe some of you would say this, that I have believed in God my whole life. Maybe say, I've had a belief in God. I've had this faith in God my whole life. Maybe what you have believed about God has not really changed at all. 
But things today are starting to get different. Things today are starting to bother you that did not bother you before. Can I tell you what I think is happening if that's you? It's going, you're, you're starting to make this trip from the I know to the I know. Stuff is starting to interest you that has never interested you before. And it's not that you're, you're believing anything differently, but things are changing in your heart. Things are moving from the I know, I just I intellectually get it, to now I feel it. And, and you and Nehemiah have something in common because that's what I believe he is going through. It impacts him heavily. So his response is, he takes a few days to weep, to mourn, to pray, to fast. He goes, i got to figure this out. What is God doing to me? There's something changing inside of me. And now what will happen is Nehemiah has to do something about this. His response to what he's heard and what he believes God is telling him to do. He is going to go back to Jerusalem and he is going to lead a group of people to repair the walls. That is the only way he can fix what's going on. He has to do something when he goes from the I know to the I know. And here's where it began. It began with a heart that was broken for the things of God. That's where it started for him. His heart broke for the things of God. And my question for us today as a church is when was the last time your heart broke for the things of God? You believed it your whole life. But something's different now. You've gone from the I know to the I know. And when was the last time, like Nehemiah, your heart broke? You wept. Something you saw in our culture broke your heart because you know it breaks God's heart. When was the last time your heart broke for the things of God? That is what's going on with Nehemiah, I do believe. So, on page 295, here's what happens next. This is Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 5. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. Do you hear what he's saying? Do you hear in his morning what he's crying out to God? I could spend the whole rest of our morning and maybe the next few Sundays just on what he is praying to God. He's coming to acknowledge God, you are the great and awesome, mighty God. He has not lost this um, sense of who God is, even though he grew up in exile in in a godless land. He still understands who God is. And and it seems like he has an awareness of what got them into this situation to begin with. Why they are even here and why the walls are in such bad shape. And then he comes to the Lord to come clean. He says, Lord, I confess my sins. He's saying, we have not done it your way. This is, our sins have got us into this trouble. And even myself, I contributed to not following you and sinning against you and, and, and have come against you with our behavior and sin. Do, do you hear what's going on inside of him? This is a man that's going from the I know to the I know. He's laying it out there before God. His heart is broken for the things of God. And he just lays it 
out there bare, and he knows that this is pushing him towards something. And I wonder, when was the last time your heart broke for the things of God, and does that brokenness push you towards something? So Nehemiah, he received permission from the king to go back to Jerusalem, to go to Jerusalem, rather. Now, this is a big deal. God's hand had to have been in this because Nehemiah has a very important job. It's not like he can just bail on his job, but the king's like, you know what, you can go and, and you can do what you need to do. You, you have my permission and my blessing. And you, this is fantastic. But do you understand what he's going home to do? He has to, he has to go home and he has to organize all of these people and rally them and get them fired up and organized to do this work. And Nehemiah can't do it himself. He is going to have to go to Jerusalem. And while they're trying to do this project, they're going to have to defend themselves from all these other nations that don't like the idea that Jerusalem is going to be a fortified city again. They don't like that. And he's got to defend himself against those people. But after 52 days, Nehemiah goes home, and it takes 52 days to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Friends, that is an incredible feat. You know what? I'll think about pulling weeds for 52 days before I get motivated to do anything about it. 52 days, and the walls of Jerusalem are assured up again. It is amazing what the people of God can accomplish when they pull together. It really is. With God's blessing, the strength of his Holy Spirit, it's amazing what God's people can do when they pull together. So they finished rebuilding the walls. The people, when they finished the project, they gathered together at what the Bible says is the water gate. And it's an interesting name, I know. And the water gate. And they're all gathered there together to, to thank you for the delayed response on that one. I, I appreciate that. And so they all gathered together at the water gate. Thousands of them. Uh, some of you are just now getting it. Oh, I don't know what Okay. Thousands of people, men, women, children, all of them that can come, they gather at this gate, and this is what happens. This is on page 300 of your storybook. This is Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1. The walls are finished, the people have gathered, and all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. I don't want to gloss over this. Do you understand what they're asking Ezra to do? Ezra, the book of the law, can you pull it out of storage and will you read it to us? Something, they've seen God do something fantastic and they're like, come and read to us. And so Esther's like, absolutely, Esther, or excuse me, Ezra, he is their priest. He is the one guy out of all of them that knew God's law. And so he pulls out the law and he opens it up. So it says, on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. They're all there. Can you close your eyes and see this picture? He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Can I help you understand even a little deeper what this means? No one 
in 140 years has opened up the words of God and read them publicly to the people of God. It's been 140 years and these people are hungry. They are spiritually famished and they listen from the moment the sun comes up all the way till noon. And when I mean listen, it's like on the edge of your seat listening to every word that Ezra is reading. Kind of like when I'm preaching, you guys are like that, you know, edge of your seat, can't, can't just listening. Some of you are like, what do you say? What? What? <laughs> they were listening intently. That's how starved they were. That's how hungry they were to hear something from from God. Can you just imagine? They, they've been a part of this incredible building project and they know that God had everything to do with it and now they are desperately needing a word. They can't get enough and some of you in this room today know exactly what that feels like, don't you? Because for the first time in your life, you have been given the word of God. And for the first time, you have actually been reading it intensely and eating up every word. And it doesn't mean you haven't been sitting in church and getting little nuggets of scripture. But for the first time, you didn't realize how spiritually malnourished you were until you picked up God's word. And you're hanging on every word. And some of you, because of that, are making this journey that you can't explain right now from the I know to the I know. And it's the Word of God that's doing that. So on page 300, this is what happens next. This is Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 5. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And he opened it. The people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God. And all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. And then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. These are people who, through the reading of the word, were overwhelmed by the spirit of repentance. It's like it all came crashing down on them as to why we're in this predicament to begin with and how they've neglected God. And for over a century, they've wanted nothing to do with him. And now for the first time, they're being confronted. And so they shout out, amen, amen. And that's a word that all it means is so be it or let it be so. It's like saying, I agree. May that come to pass. And I want you to know that in this environment, environment, it's perfectly fine for you to say amen. When, when God prompts you and, and you hear something, you agree, like, let it be so, you can say amen. Now, I want you to know, every amen adds like five minutes to the sermon because it gets me fired up, so just be warned. It's an agreement. It's an agreement. You know, a few years ago when I was living in Kansas City, um, I got invited to preach at another church um, in Kansas City, and it was the first ex kind of experience for me because it was, it was a Baptist church, and it was a predominantly black church, all African Americans, and it was awesome. We, we, we worshiped, and I had not been a part of a worship service like that before, and uh, people were dancing, and they were shouting, and, and, and there was a, such an expression of joy, and, and the worship team, and, and it was a long worship service, let me tell you. And, and, and we just, we worshiped. And then everybody sat down, and then I stood up to preach. And I thought, oh man, this party's going to die. <laughs> and as I began to preach, or me, I began with a prayer before I preached. And I asked everybody to join me in prayer, and it's super quiet, and I start to pray. 
And I don't know if the worship pastor just thought I needed some help, but right in the middle of that prayer, he got up and went to the keyboard, and right when I took a breath, he gave me one of these. And I had a musical accompaniment to the rest of my prayer. And so I would pray, and then he would play, and I would pray, and he would play, and people would cheer, and I said amen. Everyone said amen and started clapping, and I thought, wow. And then I started to preach, and he sat down. And I got about five minutes into my sermon. I don't know if he need, thought I needed some help again, but he got up, and then I started to preach some more, and I got some musical comfort. So it was almost like a song. I would preach, and he would go, dun da and I would preach some more, and he would go, dun da And something began to fire up in me, and I started to sing. I was like, Jesus, and hit it. And no, it wasn't quite that bad. One, wasn't quite that. I'm exaggerating just a little bit. I tell you all of that simply because it is perfectly okay to be joyful to God. It is perfectly okay to be moved by what God has done and to have a response of joy and to have a response of repentance and to have some kind of physical, emotional response to what God is doing in your life because let's face it, friends, he reached down into the very pits of hell and rescued you and that should evoke some kind of response to your King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It is okay to be like the Israelites here who went from the I know to the I know. It went from the I get it to now I feel it and it put them to their needs. And I'll ask you a question again. When was the last time you were broken for the things of God? And it motivated you to do something like Nehemiah and like the Israelites where they got down on their knees and they told God, we're so sorry for what we've done. Now we find out that the people are, are very broken. The Bible talks about how tears are running down their faces. They are full-blown sobbing at times. W why? Because Ezra brought out the Word of God, and they didn't know it. And when he started to read, this was not preaching. This was, not this was just reading the words of God, and they learned for the first time, just how much God loved them. And they were experiencing that love through the reading of God's Word. And they were reading for the first time about God's desire to be with them and about God's promise and His plan to get them back. And they were undoubtedly overwhelmed in that moment. Does this connect with any of you? Can you relate to what they're doing? The very reading of the Word of God is spoken so directly into their hearts, and it went from the I know to the I know. Nehemiah stands up, the Bible says, and he tries to bring some comfort to the people because they're broken by just the very words of God. And Nehemiah basically says to these people, we've been broken, but now we're going we're gonna to find joy again. And we're going to celebrate. And then they have this big season of celebration. And, and, and Nehemiah leads them to praise God and to be in a joyful way. I think that same emotion comes on people today when they finally get what the Bible is all about. When, when, when we understand just how deeply loved we are and just how far God has gone to get us back and to be in community with us. And when we finally get that message, it, it is overwhelmingly wonderful. 
And sometimes our only response is tears of joy. Well, you know what happens next? The people are having this incredible moment. They're learning the Word of God for the very first time. And so they read, in, through the reading of the Word, they learn that there are festivals that God wants them to, to follow. And they read about this one. It's called the Festival of Tabernacles. And they realize that, that they had not been following God's law. They've not been doing anything that God wanted them to do. And so they decided, you know what, we're going to start with that festival right there. And they go all out to do it every way that the Lord told them to do in the word. And the Bible tells us that the Israelites had not celebrated that festival in such an intense way since the days of Joshua when they moved into the promised land. Friends, I want you to know something. Obeying God's word, aligning our lives to his plan brings joy to our lives like nothing else can. Absolutely. That's what they're experiencing. And that's what we experience too today when we obey. When we align with God's plan, it brings joy. It brings joy. Well, there's one more prophet that we learn about in the Old Testament. It's the last prophet. His name is Malachi. And Malachi tells us some very interesting details about what is to come. Malachi tells about another prophet in the future that will come. And we have learned since that this prophet that he was retur- what he was talking about was John the Baptist. And he talks about how this prophet will bring in the one we've all been waiting for. And so what does John the Baptist do when you jump into the New Testament? He goes before Jesus and prepares the way. And I tell you, I can't wait till we start to unpack the New Testament because everything that we have studied so far is pointing to Jesus. Now, I want you to know, I hope you've enjoyed our journey through the Old Testament. The Old Testament contains 39 books filled with stories, and we've read them, of adventure and love and heartbreak and triumph and power and disappointment, of struggle, of war and peace. But as we've read all of these things, we have to remember it isn't just a collection of unrelated accounts or some historical record. Each story that we have encountered has contributed to the unfolding of the one story of God. In fact, as many of these events and people that we've seen, they've revealed that every single story of God's people and the nation of Israel points us to the coming of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And I hope that you're seeing that too. And I believe that's going to make a whole lot more sense here in a few weeks. Everything we've read, everything that God has done, everything the Israelites have gone through, it all is getting us ready to meet the one true Savior, God Himself, the incarnation, God in flesh, coming to rescue His people. And like the children of Israel, we too must prepare the way for the Lord. We must prepare our hearts to receive this one whose goal is to get us back. To be a part of God's family. Our destiny is with God. There is a chosen people today. 
and we're going to learn all about it in the New Testament. So I hope you'll come and join us, and I hope you'll journey with us. And again, if this is your first time with us today, come back next week. Bring a friend. I believe God wants to show you something very significant.